I want to talk a little bit about joy and the whole dynamic of joy. But I want us to read, if we can, quickly Philippians 4, verses 1 through 4. Again, Paul is writing this to the church at Philippi. This is a letter. So the Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, as most of the epistles in the New Testament were. Those epistles, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, all, they're all actually connected to cities where Paul had planted churches. And uh, they were known cities in that day, uh, in, in Asia Minor and the vicinity of the Mediterranean. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in depth. But again, this letter is being written by Paul. He's actually in Rome at the time, and he is under house arrest. So he can't go and visit the churches that he's planted. He can't address the problems in a personal way. So he uses letters to do it. And these letters actually have become amazingly beneficial for us because God used these letters and they have become part of our New Testament scripture and canon and they allow us to have a lot of life. Um, again, we're the we get blessed to hear his communications. Now this fourth chapter is a part of that letter. Again, realizing where he's writing it from is helpful. Also, let's just as a backdrop remember that the prevailing characteristic of the book of Philippians is connected to how Paul defined their prevailing um, characteristic as a people. They were known for their joy. They brought Paul joy, and they were a joyful people. They had, they had always been, and, and we're going to talk about that, but for Paul, a source of great joy. And so he's writing to this church that he considers to be an exemplary church, a people, a community of believers that he has had the ability to watch grow into a point of maturity, and it brings him tremendous joy and satisfaction. That's the backdrop for, for what we're about to read. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, please stay true to the Lord and, and, and just hear the, the affection in his words. I love you. I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown that I receive for my work. But all was not well in the church. Paul was concerned about an issue. There seems to have been a division that had arisen between two very prominent members of the church, uh, actually two, two women leaders, were given their names, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. And evidently, they had such a severe disagreement that, that people were starting to take sides. This concerned Paul. He saw it as an issue that needed to be addressed. Look, look what it says here. It says, now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. He says, please, because you belong to the Lord, will you settle your disagreement? And I, I ask you, my true partner. Now, we don't know the name of the true partner. We don't know who that person was, but it seems like it was a leader in the church that Paul felt uh, could be uh, helpful by engaging this in a more direct fashion. And so he appeals to his friend, his partner in ministry, to take a more uh, uh, active role in trying to bridge the gap that seemed to be this fissure that needed to be addressed that was uh, emerging. And he says, would you, I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they, they've both, they're both very wonderful women. They've worked hard with me. They've been a blessing to me. He's not, Paul's not taking a side, notice. They've each worked with me in telling others about this good news. And they worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life, that is, who share the promise of heaven. I mean, these, he, he wasn't even trying to take a side himself. He was just saying, help, help them get past their dispute because it's a concern to me that other people are going to um, get caught up in this and this, this amazing community of believers is going to be divided. And I don't want that. It needs to be addressed. But then he says this, and this sets up the fourth verse. Now, the fourth verse is a verse that's often referred to um, on its own. It's one of those verses that people can use, in, in, and I think it's helpful to do this. I mean, we talk about the, the importance of memorizing Scripture. Sometimes it's good to adopt a, a verse for a season. Some of us may want to have a verse for this year. We may need to pray and think about it, but we pick a verse. We say, I'm going to commit that verse to memory. It's going to be my verse for the year. Some people do it one, one, for one a month, 12 verses in a year. 
You end up memorizing 12 verses, and they become themes in your year. But a lot of times a verse has value. I mean, we all know a verse, when it stands alone, can have meaning and an effect. It might have an additional meaning just because of where we are in our own life. Many of us know, say, a verse like John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, life overflowing and abundant. Many of us have memorized that verse. It it tells us so much. But, you know, that verse was actually part of of a larger context, that verse, that 16th verse of John 3, for example, was part of a larger exchange that Jesus had with a, an inquisitive intellectual and religious leader by the, a man who was named Nicodemus. The point being is that verse itself had a context attached to it, and this fourth verse, which is going to be often referred to about joy, actually has a context. And it's not uh, a small context or an insignificant one. Again, Paul places this, this verse, this command, very strategically underneath this, this issue of conflict. So this appeal for joy is an appeal that it follows on the heels of his concern about conflict that's emerging. And as in so doing, it becomes a great lesson for us. So just for the sake of continuity and foundation laying around this idea, let me just quickly point out a couple of things. So right, actually, I'll do this on the front end. We'll put a couple of things on the board just to connect with this verse, which what Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. And, and I say it again, rejoice. The older version says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Okay, what can we learn from this, this opening foundational movement? Number one, we, no, we noted this already. The, the command to, jo- to be joyful follows um, a discussion of a problem. And I think that's important for us to recognize. Where it is placed has meaning. And it's almost like he's saying, listen, don't, you guys, listen to me. Don't let the negativity of what's happening here define you. Don't get caught up in this. Watch this thing. Remember, you are a people who have been called to live in the joy of the Lord and to express that joy. Now, joy is an interesting word. I mean, I was thinking about it. We were talking about it. How do we define joy? Now, a lot of us know what we understand when we say, oh, you know, I really enjoyed that. It means we liked it a lot. We really appreciated it. We got a lot, of, we got a lot out of that. It actually, it was important to us. We, had, we laughed. We understand when things, we enjoy something. But how would you define joy? If someone said, hey, can you explain to me, what would be your definition of joy? If we were asked that question. And, you know, it's something to think about. We know what it is, but actually how to define it. Well, it's kind of like being happy a lot, you know. Happiness amped up, maybe, you know? Uh, If you look it up, it actually is closely connected to gladness, to this abiding gladness. But it's almost like gladness with a sparkle, you know? It's like a notch up, uh, if I can put it that way. Joy is something that has a little bit more than just happiness. And so, you know, Paul's saying, you know, make sure that joy is a characteristic of your life. And I love the fact that it's placed underneath this conflict, this problem. Because it's a reminder to us that, Life is not always easy. And there are times, as we discussed last week, when we are going to have real problems, real issues, people issues, issues at work. We're going to have issues in our own personal life. We're going to be struggling sometimes in our own walk with God to get past habits of our past. Sometimes we've got dysfunctions that we've fallen back into, sins that, that have been connected to generations that have preceded us, and we've, we've, we're, just, we're just not in a good place. Or maybe we're experiencing a lot of hurt, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure in life. The point being is there will be problems in life. Um, so they're going to have struggles. You know, Jesus didn't sell us a false bill of goods. Even he said, and we'll just put this up in John 16, 33. He says, look, I've given you, I've, I've told you all this, that you can have peace in me. I want you to have peace in me, not fighting in your own mind. I want you to have the peace of God at work in your life. He says, but listen, 
here on earth, but that peace that I'm giving you, it's actually not a peace that is the peace that sort of is defined by exemption from trouble. It's not the absence of trouble. He says, actually, it's a peace that prevails just like this joy beyond the real trouble in life. He's saying, look, the, in this world, on this earth, here on earth, you will have, and he makes the word trials and sorrows. But he says, but listen to me, take heart, or as the older version says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and I'm with you, so you can too. It's a reminder, though, that our, our peace, our joy, is something that can actually be moving in our lives, even though we may be in a conflict, a difficult place. We may have troubles going on. That this joy can still be there. We're going to talk about that. Secondly, note, it's worth noting that it's not just joy that, that Paul refers to. He says, but it's joy in the Lord, right? Number two, it's joy in the Lord. It's not just a kind of joy that's um, on its own human level. It's, it's a joy that he intentionally connects to Christ. It's tethered to the Lord. It's a byproduct of the Spirit. It's flowing from, using the language of John 15, the vine. You are, I am the vine. You are the branches, Jesus said. Let my life flow into you. It's not just something that is manipulated at a human level. It's, it's not just a mental technique, a mantra of detachment, but actually it's a, a supernatural kind of thing that goes beyond a, a normative kind of infusion. You know, It's connected and attached to the real presence of God in our lives. In other words, it flows from Christ. It's a gift from God. It's something we welcome in, and that leads to this third piece, which is this. It, it's connected to both a condition and a choice, Okay. What we're saying here is that it's, it's something that we are to welcome in. Like, like if God, we say, God, I want you to fill me with more of your joy right now. It's like we're saying, Lord, fill my cup. Take this, this and fill it in. My life is a vessel. Fill me up with your joy. Let this fill up in my life. I need your joy in my life. But it's also something not only that we are to receive, it's something that we are called to express. Rejoice. So the first part of that verse is rejoice in the Lord. Be filled with his joy. The second part of it is rejoice. That's a choice. That's an action. That's a way of being on our part. We choose it. There's an element of this that we, we, have, we get to decide. The words that we're going to speak in a given situation, how we are going to be in a season of life, our demeanor, our tone, our attitude, our way of being. You see what I'm saying? And, and the way we are is going to affect the flow of joy. Kind of these things are connected. The joy of the Lord is a gift. We can ask him for it. Lord, give me, give me more of your joy in my life right now. I need it badly. But then there also is a decision we get to make about how we are going to allow the circumstances of life that oftentimes are difficult to define us and the way in which we are going to approach life. And the Bible reminds us that we are, and this is, I guess, the summary statement here, is that we are all to grow. We are being invited, all of us, no matter how naturally, by demeanor, we are a happy person or not. We're all being called to expand as a people filled with his joy. That God wants to expand us as a growing people, a joyful people. That God, listen, the, the, the way of Jesus is most contagious when it's reflected in the lives of people who are at their core joyful and not negative and angry and bitter and judgmental, but joyful people at the core. And, and again, as we're going to see, that it doesn't always depend on our circumstances. Okay. Now, I said all that because it sort of does take us back to something. Remember I mentioned that the, the church itself was characterized by joy. Joy is the, the primary word in the, in the Philippian letter as well. And it's what Paul's calling them to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It ironically brings us back to the first moments they began as a people. The, 
early incidents that form the beginning of the church at Philippi actually are connected to what we just shared. You know, there's an incident that, I'm, that we're going to look at in a moment that I'm sure was talked about time and time again. Uh, it, was, it became, how do you say, celebrated as part of their congregational story, their community story. I think we all understand that every church, like every family, has a story. Uh, we all, and, and as, as time goes by, that story becomes kind of lore, and it becomes intertwined into the personality of a people. So that at different times when we were gathered together with people who are, say we've been with for a long time, we talk about certain things. Remember when that happened? Or you remember when they did this? And, and that becomes part of a history of a people. It's true of a church as well. That you refer back to moments of the beginnings especially. That the beginning stages of everything, the foundation, the origin, it, it sort of, it always stays with that, those people. And, and think about it. Even when, say for example, our church, we have, we have what we kind of call our version of membership, which is a, it's called Connections, the Connections classes. And part of what happens in those classes is people get connected to the unique history of who we are and how that history has, uh, and how we have emerged as a, as a, lo- as a church here in, a, in a local, one of the expressions of Jesus in this city, of his, his love for this city, I hope and believe. And that, that as we've emerged, but it's connected to our story and its beginnings. I'm trying to make, make a point here that, that there are things that, we, that characterize a people but that, those things that characterize the people often are connected to how, they, how those beginning moments started. So in a way, it's helpful because Paul is saying, in a, in a way, remember you were a people formed in joy. That you were literally born out of a joyful moment as a people. And now, what's interesting is because Paul did not originally plan on starting this church in Philippi. We know that something actually unusual happened. It was on his, what we call his second missionary journey, his second journey to plant churches in the region of, of the Mediterranean. Paul had actually intended not to go to Philippi, which was to the west of, of where he was, but actually he had, was intending to go towards Asia, to the east. And he felt impressed by God. The older version uses the phrase, um, forbidden in the spirit. That Paul gets this impression that the Lord does not want him to go in the plan, to follow the plans that he had made, but to actually not go that way. So Paul decides, well, okay, if I'm not supposed to go eastward, then I will go with my, my, my team. Silas was his main partner, but also Timothy and Luke. I will then go north. But it says that he felt also, no, that's not where you're supposed to go. He, he, he then had something happen that coincided with that impression. Look, and I'll put, we'll put this up. It's in, you can read about it more in details in Acts 16, but just put this verse up. It says, that night, Paul had a vision. So Paul has this vision, and in this vision, you know what he sees? He sees this man who's from northern Macedonia in Greece, or Macedonia in northern Greece. And most likely because of the particular clothing that this man wore, Paul recognized immediately where he was from, the region, or perhaps when he spoke, because the man in the vision, which didn't happen all the time to Paul, and it, it just was on, already on the heels of, he, he was working through what he was feeling, and, he, and he, in this vision, he hears this man, sees this man, and it's like this, in like this dream, and it says, listen, come over to us in Macedonia, come over and help us. So Paul, as he as he's, as he's gets that, he, immediately in his heart, he goes, I know now, God doesn't want me to go 
east. He doesn't want me to go north. He wants me to go west. And I'll, I'm going to just put the, the map up so we get an idea of specifically of what we're talking about here. Look at this. And this is still, it, uh, geographically, the center of the world in so many ways. The Middle East, the Mediterranean world. You can see the boot of Italy. You can see where pa uh, Palestine is, Jerusalem. You can see where Philippi is on the top. Philippi in Macedonia. Philippi, by the way, named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. It was a Roman colony. It was an important city in Paul's day. Paul recognizes immediately he's supposed to move towards it. it says they gonna, look, at, it says here in verses 11 and 12, it says, and we boarded a boat at Troas. You can see where Troas is there. And we sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. Now that's not located there, but that's basically the port to the, inland, uh, the, the port on the sea that allows one to make the inland route into Philippi. And so Paul says, we arrived at Philippi. Look what it says. From there we reached Philippi, verse 12, a major city of that district of Macedonia. And it was a Roman colony which gave it special privileges and had a unique kind of Roman presence to it. So it was a Greco-Roman city. And we stayed there several days. Now, Paul is in his mind. He's thinking, well, I have this vision of a, of a Macedonian man. Um, maybe God has something in mind, perhaps, right? And, but what's interesting is he, he usually would make his way when he wanted to start a church. He would start by going to synagogues. And Paul would talk... To, to, Jewish, uh, to those who followed the Jewish ways of the Older Testament, the ways of the faith of their fathers. And then also there were what were called God-fearers or Gentile converts to, to the faith in the one true God of Israel. And in these synagogues, Paul would often talk, and he would talk about Messiah and the coming one, the promised one has come, and his name is Jesus. And he would talk about the fact that he had risen from the dead and, and he had given his life and, and that there was this opportunity to, to know God through his son. And, and Paul would talk about, the, again, remember, Paul had originally been a fierce opponent of this way of the Nazarene. But since his own personal exchange with the living Christ, he had become this you know, just revolutionary pioneer. Okay, I say all that because... Listen, Paul gets there, and he's looking, and he doesn't see a synagogue, because evidently there were not. A, it took at least 10 be believing uh, male Jews to have a synagogue, and it, evidently there were not enough there. So there was no synagogue to go to. So Paul says, well, the, the, what would happen is often a small group would gather somewhere else in kind of a makeshift church or gathering, if we can think of it that way. And Paul had heard about, as was at times the practice, that there was a prayer gathering, which was the only service that he could find, of believers that were gathered by one of the rivers that was on the outskirts of the city of Philippi. And Paul makes his way to that, to that gathering. He hears about it. He goes there. And he begins to talk about in the process. But what he finds is there's not actually that many men, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of women who have gathered there. And as he's, they're believing women. And one of those women was a woman who was actually quite prominent. She was noted as a businesswoman, uh, a seller specifically of purple which was, uh, in this case, it was exquisite garments that had utilized a purple dye that could be found only in that region of the world. And this woman whose name was Lydia, actually, the Bible says, opened up her heart to the message of Christ. And this, this Gentile believer in the, in the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, becomes in this moment, but the word that is used there is like a door opening up. She receives the message and actually decides to be baptized as well. We, would, we can assume in that very river that they were by. And then she doesn't stop there. She, in her enthusiasm, says, where are you staying? They say, we don't know yet. She says, I want you to stay in our house. And, and it says that, that Paul, although initially reluctant, decided to do it. And he and Silas and, and, the, and most likely Timothy and Luke as well, they stay with Lydia in her house. So the first founding member of the Church of Philippi was Lydia. What happens next, though? Days are passing. 
what are we doing here, God? How are you going to do this? Well, Paul's walking back and forth through the city to go to the place of prayer on a daily basis, but something happens. You can read it again. It's in Acts 16, worth following up. Well, we're told that something happens, that every day he walks past a certain street on the way that he has to go, there is this girl who just seems like out of her mind. Uh, The Bible says that she's demonized, that she's actually a fortune teller, a slave girl, um, and that people have been using her to make money, her owners. And every day Paul and Silas walk by, she yells out in wild rage, mocking them, and, and it just out loud, making a giant, and it's just so awkward. And again, they're strangers, and there's this, this confrontation going on, you know, yelling at them. And it finally says that Paul, after a number of days having to deal with this back and forth, finally it says he was disturbed. The word is annoyed in his spirit, Right? And in a moment of, I would assume, um, God impressed him to do so, he has a spirit, he has a confrontation, not in a physical way. Although it it had physical ramifications, it was a spiritual confrontation. And And Paul, in the name of Christ, calls forth the freedom of this girl. And her mind that has been oppressed and used is immediately, she's freed. And she's a different person. Her owners are livid. They've been making a lot of money on her as a fortune teller. Bible says that when they realize what is happening, they get so upset as they realize there's no longer any money that's going to be flowing here, that they all, in a mob-like fashion, it says, leaped upon them, and they grabbed them and started dragging them. Look, that's where we pick up right here in the handout. Look at verse 22, all right? It says, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. And they were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison And the jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. And so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Again, after, you know, we read this and we go, oh, yeah, you know, they kind of got taken in and thrown in prison. I mean, think about what actually happened for a moment. As soon as this this power encounter occurs, as soon as this mob uh, comes after these outsiders, we're told that they are just dragged to the authorities, thrown into not just the prison, but into the inner dungeon of the prison. That would have been the dampest. It would have been damp. It would have been dark. It would have been rat-infested. It would have been filled with the stench of rotting food, urine, and feces. It was, uh, there was no, we know that there were no airflow in those places. The only air that would come in, there were no windows. The only air that came in was when the door was opened. I mean, it was bad, but, we're, but that wasn't just it. We know that they were on top of that. They were in absolute agony. Because we're told in that, what, verse 22 there, that they were literally uh, stripped down, at least on their backs, and they were beaten, beaten with wooden sticks. I mean, just smacked down, bloodied and bruised. And then if that wasn't it, it, we're also told that they, they're in, they're, they're, not only were they thrown in there uh, with their backs and bloodied and bruised, and they're beaten up, and this place is awful. But then we're told that they were placed in stocks, which means that there was a a, a wooden clamp. And usually the clamp was placed in a way that would cause you pain. And it clamped over your feet, just with a a hole large enough to cover your ankles. And you were locked in there. And so we're told that their feet were locked in stocks. And then it was clamped down and locked up. And so here they are. They're in absolute pain. They're in absolute anguish. Um, they, They have no freedom of mobility. It's dark. It stinks. Um, they're bleeding, uh, looking at one another. And this, is, this is bad. This is very bad. It's not good. I mean, I would have been crying, just to be honest with you. But this is awful. And as they're there, the Bible says, 
that it was around midnight. I don't know how it happened. But somewhere around midnight, I don't know who started it. But it says midnight hour. They started singing. They started singing praise to God in the midnight hour. And look what it says. It says that when they, when they started singing, it says something happened. It says that the other prisoners were listening. And I can only imagine it, that all of a sudden through the whole prison, you just hear these two voices in the inner dungeon echoing through. And out of the pain, they start to sing their praise to God, the psalms that they had known so well, the psalms that often talked about the suffering and the affliction of my enemies. And they started singing to God in the midnight hour. And it says the other prisoners were listening. And I'm going to tell you something. People listen to our lives, especially when things are not going well. People who know us, people who are aware of our situations, in those painful, hurtful, miserable times, may we sing the songs we were meant to sing for God. And may others be struck by the song that is in our heart when it makes absolutely no sense to be singing in the inner dungeon with our legs confined and our backs beaten and bloodied and bruised and everything in us as our body is, I mean, there's something there. And by the way, this is what happens. It says here that then, verse 26, suddenly, in the midst of this moment, there was a massive earthquake. We live in a region where we understand earthquakes. And it says, the prison was shaken to the foundations. Look at this. And all the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. So there was an immediate just, you know, things broke. Things started crumbling. And it looked like they were all escaping, but evidently it didn't happen quite that way. There was enough rubble, or people were enough terrorized, nobody really moved. And by the time the jailer gets there, he's thinking they've already left, but nobody had. Look what it says was going to happen. Suddenly, after this earthquake occurs, it says the jailer woke up to see that the prison doors were wide open. And he assumes that all the prisoners had escaped, and so he drew his sword to kill himself. He was a dead man anyway. For Rome, no excuse would have been sufficient. And, and, and they understood the code of honor was, you lose the prisoner, you're a dead man anyway. So he was going to, and, and as one author called it, it was a brutal kind of heroism that marked that age. He was going to take his own life. I failed, I'm done, I'm finished. And he was about to kill himself, as a Roman would have, in that day. And Paul says, don't do that, stop. Look at the verse here. It says, he says to him, stop, don't kill yourself. He shouts at him, we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights. He ran down the dungeon. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he asked them, sirs, clearly something's going on here. I don't understand. What do I have to do? I've been hearing you talk. What do I have to do to be saved? And then they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them. He washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in their household, they were, they were also immediately baptized to identify with Jesus it says, and he brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them. And he and his entire household did what? Rejoiced. There it is again. The founding story again. They all rejoiced because they, why? Had all believed in God. You know what Paul is saying? Think about this. They were, this becomes, with Lydia, the first family in the church. Think about it. And, and, this, and then it grows. And now what are we being told? They were a people of joy. They were birthed in joy. What was the joy? They were birthed, that church in so many ways was birthed out of a song. They were birthed in joy. 
And so we see Paul here in Philippians 4, 4. He's basically saying, look, rejoice in the Lord. Be full of the joy of the Lord. And again, I say to you, rejoice. What is he basically saying? He's basically saying, remember what you are a, as a people were born to do. Rejoice. Don't forget what's most important. Rejoice. Don't get bogged down in taking sides. Rejoice. Don't get frustrated and start attacking one another. No, I tell you, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. This is who you were made to be. You know what's ironic? That the guy who is in Paul, as he's writing this, is where? He's locked. He is basically chained to a Roman guard. He's under house arrest. He is confined. He, is de- he does not have freedom. The one who has no freedom, or limited freedom, is writing to the people who are relatively carefree in their liberty. And he's telling that the one who has no freedom is telling the other ones to rejoice, who have all the freedom. Now, what is that? It reminds us of a couple of things. And these are the things I want us to leave with just really quickly. Just note them. I'm going to suggest, number one, that the joy we're talking about here, and again, I'm just kind of move through this. The joy that we're talking about is not the everything is going my way kind of joy. I like that joy. <laughs> there are some people, by the way, you know, I love the joy because it's easy to be joyful. You know, when things are going our way, uh, it's just, you know, we got problems that are low. Um, people are, are showing up for us. We don't have a lot of tension in our life. We've got, things are just going well. We feel good. Sun is shining. It's, it's great to be alive. Oh, you know, that's great. I love that. Do you know that some people, even when things are going well, they can't have joy? That I've met people that are so locked up in ambition or fear or guilt that even when things are going relatively well, joy is hard to find. Always have something. But I'll tell you, for most of us, when things are going well, yes, I can be joyful. You know what joy is harder to find? It's the joy when I'm locked up in prison with with my back bloody and beaten down when everything in me is just so hurting and upset and things look bad and it stinks in here and I don't understand why God let me be in this place when all I was trying to do was what he told me to do or at least what I thought I was supposed to do and you know what, this is a mess and I'm hurting and this is awful and it stinks and it's dark. That joy is harder to find. A lot of times we just wanna feel miserable and God's, and you know, I, I'm struck by that. I, I think the singing in prison kind of joy is the joy I'm talk, we're talking about. Why? Number two, because the joy we're talking about requires that we do not feel sorry for ourselves and allow our pain and offense and disappointment and the inevitable hurt of life to define us it's so easy to yield to that kind of negativity, uh, to discouragement, even to unbelief. It's easy to want to blame or allow bitterness to set in. It's easy to want to, to just what, you know, give in, give up, give way to feelings that are unworthy of, of our Lord. Really, they are. He has been faithful. He is there. And it's easy to just say, forget it. I check out. I pull the plug. I'm numb. I don't care anymore. That attitude won't go anywhere. It's what God wants to break us out of. He wants us to to respond with a song. And you know why? Because the joy we're talking about, number three, focuses on and flows from Christ. That's the joy we're talking about. You know, a lot of times we say, well, what's the difference between happiness and joy? And I don't know if this is exactly accurate. It's just a way for me to kind of describe it. We often say, happiness depends on what happens. But joy is a gift from God 
that can sometimes show up in its most profound way when it, it looks like it's the last thing that should be happening. It's, it's not based on what's happening. It's based on what's ha- maybe what's happening inside of me because God is showing up, and I've welcomed him in. Lord, you come here. I need you. In fact, Lord, I'm going to start, and this is the last one. It's the joy that shows up when we sing the songs we were meant to sing, and I love that. Lord, I want to. I want to. I want to sing. They. It was when they started singing. And now there is a natural power, by the way, in song. And there are times when we can break out of a funk just by singing praise to God. We take a, you know, say, oh, I love you, Lord. Or I think about that song like that, that we did. All is, you know, all is well with my. It is well with my soul. You know, which we did a different version of it completely. But I'll tell you this: it was written by a man who had just lost his entire family. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Powerful. Didn't understand it. Didn't make sense. Broken, bloody, and bruised, if you will. But the song, sometimes song has power. But I'm not just talking about physical song. The question I'm asking is, is this. What is the song for this season we were given? I'm talking about attitude life approach. I'm talking about the way we conduct ourselves, the song we sing that people hear, the song of our life, the testimony of who we are, our attitude, our chosen response, the words that reflect it. These are the things. What is our life song? What is to be our song? You know, the question is often asked, hey, when those guys were in jail, when Paul was there with Barnabas, did they sing because they wanted to get free? Or did they sing because they were free? That's a great question. I think they sang because they were free. You know, and every now and then when we start singing the song we were meant to sing, you know what happens? Guess what happens? Every now and then, not always, but once in a while, God sends an earthquake. And it all breaks. It all breaks. But it happened because someone was singing in a midnight hour the praise to God that had no logic behind it except that my love for you is not dependent on you providing for me or explaining yourself to me. My commitment, my love to you, my loyalty to you is going to hold true even when everything in me wants to cry and is hurting and is in pain and is in disappointment and is confined. I sing to you because I am free. And in that freedom of singing that song, we increase the freedom in our lives. There's something, there's a powerful principle here. What is the song that God wants us to sing in the season of our life? What, what is it? Do we, do we feel trapped? Are we suffering? Have we asked him to fill us with his joy? Can we find him in the fellowship? Yes, even sometimes of our suffering. Every season, listen, loved ones, has a song to sing, a unique joy to be found like nothing else in God. And my prayer is that we would, our privilege, our opportunity, our high calling, at least in part, is to find our joyful voice. And may we find it. May we find it. And even the song that we close with is going to remind us that he is the one who sets free. And in fact, there's that phrase in that song, just real quickly, because we're going to close up here. But he says, every tree and every stone, every rushing wind that moans, they sing your praise. My God, they sing your praise. Every star and every open sky, tell of your glory divine. They shout your praise. They shout your praise. You've stolen my heart. Yes, you have. You've stolen my heart. Yes, you have. Here's the key words. You've wiped away the stains. You've broke away the chains. Yes, you have. With your love, you set me free. Three nails gave me liberty. This is a great, 
Everything about it is singing the songs we are meant to sing and living in the liberty of Christ. May his joy fill us. Let me pray, and we'll have our time of giving. We'll close out with the final song. Lord, I want to just thank you for the privilege of being able to come and to listen for your words. Your words are life to us. And I just pray that you would break us out of things, Lord. A lot of times we find ourselves locked up. It doesn't look good. It feels awful. It feels awful. Help us when things are going great not to forget you. That's always, that can happen too in these joyful places. We don't need you like we used to need you, so we forget you. But, what, but Lord, help us to remember you in the, in the good. But when the things are hard, in the difficult place, Lord, in the place when our back is bleeding, as it were, Lord, and, and, and we, are, we are, it is hard, it is hard. May our faith prevail. But even more than that, may we start to sing. Sing a song of praise and devotion to you. And may our life be that song as well. May our life sing of one who's been touched, touched by the living Jesus. So I pray for your blessing over all who are here. Fill us with your joy. And also, Lord, over our our closing song, which is our exclamation point over our time of giving, with which we honor you together as a people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen. Amen.